0: If you will, please take your Bibles and turn to John 17, John chapter 17. I just want to reiterate um, the call uh, for nursery volunteers. Um, This is a great way for you, if you're able to serve the body, uh, specifically young parents, and you have an opportunity to whisper in the ears of the little ones, as you teach them. One of the great joys I had as a pastor in my last call is that we had it worked out where I could uh, go into the nursery. And one of the things that I loved to do as I played with the young children is to sing hymns to them and quote scripture to them. In my time there, um, I saw the Lord use that in a very powerful way. And, uh, and as these young little children grew up, Um, they really got to know their pastor and it was a special time. Uh, I wish um, I could volunteer myself, but uh, you know, I'm behind the pulpit. So, um, but maybe one of these days, uh, one of us can switch out and I'll have that privilege and joy. So please, if you have time, I know many of you are busy, but if if you do have um, some spare time, I would urge you to sign up in that Um, This is our last in a series of sermons called The Work of the Holy Spirit in the Life of Jesus. Remember, we have been um, talking about the fact that if Jesus Christ needed the power of the Holy Spirit, so do we. And we've been looking at various ways in which the Holy Spirit worked in the life of Jesus, and today we'll be looking at this matter of prayer. A young man woke up in the middle of the night, and he was between consciousness, wake, and yet sleepy. He had spent the night drinking. In fact, he had drank so much that his family thought he was going to die. As this man, uh, young man woke up, he looked over to just off to his right and he noticed his mother praying for him, and he was taken aback. He shouldn't have really, because prior to this particular night, for the last three months or so, every time he came home inebriated, unable to care for himself, his mother would gently put him in the bed, wipe him off, and then pray for him. She was praying that the Lord would deliver him from this path that he was on, this path of drinking and partying. It was self-destructive. In many ways, she had seen this before because it was similar to his father. Well, this young man, as he noticed his mother praying for him, started to become really convicted about his life. Shortly after his mother had prayed for him, God started doing some amazing things in his life. The first of which is that he got poisoned. And through him being poisoned, he couldn't drink. For a period of just over a year, he couldn't. Every time he tried to drink alcohol, he would throw it back up and would get violently sick. Shortly after he got poisoned, this young man met a young lady. And this young lady invited him to church. And this young man was, uh, came to know the Lord as a result of that. In fact, this young man joined that church. And being in community of believers with others, praying with him along with his mother, he ended up uh, changing his life completely. And through that process, the Lord brought him not only to faith, but actually brought him to the ministry. And of course, this young man is standing before you today. Please do not discount the power of intercessory prayer. You know, so often people say, pray for me. And, you know, because we're busy or for whatever reason, we don't take the time to do it. But there is power in prayer. I know that there's power in prayer, intercessory prayer, because I'm standing before you today. And here's the reality of it, brothers and sisters. All of us are in here today sitting down because someone prayed for us. Someone took the time to pray for us. It might be your parents. It might be another relative. It might be a friend. It might be people you don't even know. But they were faithful in praying for you loving your soul enough to go before the Lord and plead for your soul that you may come to a knowledge of him. You know, one of the things that I wish with all my heart was that I had a copy of my mother's prayers for me. I wish I could have read them to know what she said. I wish I had them before me to know exactly how she prayed that God would deliver my soul from these self-destructive habits. I don't have those prayers. But you know, I do have another prayer. Another intercessory prayer. And it's right here in John 17. Before us is the intercessory prayer of our Lord the great high priestly prayer. And in it, we see Jesus not just praying for his disciples, but the word of God says, uh, Jesus says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am praying for you, all of you in this building. Jesus prayed for you because you are the ones who would believe on the words that are written by his apostles and maybe you might be in here today and you do not know jesus christ as lord and personal savior we'll be praying that you come to that knowledge of the truth now what is it that your lord prayed for you let's read this passage and see let's begin at john 17 Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for those, these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may be, all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me All flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be preached unto you. Amen and amen. Let's go before our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that indeed you sent your son, Jesus Christ, and he was a praying savior, a savior that prayed for us. And even now, we see the fruits of this prayer. Bless us now as we look at this prayer. Help us, Father, to have a great appreciation for your prayers for us and through your prayers, what you desire for us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Now, this prayer is a long prayer, and we can't delve into every aspect of this prayer I once saw someone preach a series of about 20 sermons on every aspect of this prayer. Uh, We will not be doing that today. But there are two aspects of this prayer that that I want us to look at. First of all, I want us to see that Jesus wants us to be sanctified by truth. That's what he prayed for us. But also, I want you to see that Jesus Christ wants us to be sanctified by unity. Sanctified by the truth, and sorry, he would want us to be identified by our unity. So it's sanctified by truth and identified by our unity. First of all, uh, Jesus prayed that we might be sanctified by the truth. Notice verse 15 through 17. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, what does Jesus mean by sanctification? Well, there's a positional aspect of sanctification, and then there's an ethical aspect of sanctification. And you might say, well, pastor, what do you mean by a positional aspect of sanctification or positional need as we see in sanctification? Well, most of us know Uh, Probably the basic definition of sanctification is to be set apart. But it's not simply to be set apart from something. We need to be set apart to something. In other words, if I want to be set apart from this chair, I am called then to be set apart to something else. That's what it means to be sanctified. And in this passage, we are told what we ought to be sanctified from and to. First of all, notice in verse number 15, Jesus prays that they might be kept from the evil one. In other words, they need to be sanctified from the evil one to God. In other words, they don't belong to the devil. They belong to God. And so we are sanctified to God. Notice with me in verse number 16, uh, Jesus goes on to say, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Well, what is Jesus saying here? That we ought to be sanctified from the world. Jesus is asking for two things in this passage. Number one, that God might protect us from the attacks of the evil one. That he does not destroy our lives. But also, Jesus is saying here that we might not be worldly. We might not conduct ourselves in a worldly manner or sinful matter. Now, remember who is praying this prayer. And remember who's listening. In one sense, Jesus is the one that's praying this prayer. But the one's listening is his disciples. Now, Jesus never wrote scripture, so we know from this passage that Jesus didn't write these words, his disciples wrote these words. So that means his disciples had to hear him pray this prayer. Imagine sitting off just to the side and listening to Jesus pray for you. Pray that the evil one does not overcome you. And to pray that you do not conduct yourself in a worldly manner. What a profound prayer to hear. Now, here's what I want you to see, that Jesus is asking the Father to keep them from the evil one. It's the Father who he's asking to sanctify. And in this, I want to show you two aspects of sanctification that I think is important. And it's this, sanctification must be done by God. It cannot be done by yourself. It cannot be done by... By your own power and strength, we are unable to sanctify ourselves. It is a work of grace by our loving God. That's why Jesus says, Lord, you have to sanctify them. If you do not sanctify them, they will not be sanctified. And so sanctification is a work of grace that God has done in your heart and mind. But notice also that our sanctification is based on your justification. In other words, you are the the process of sanctification can only begin, can only start if you are justified. And this is in the passage. Notice verse 2 and 3. Jesus says this, "Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given" Give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Well, this is a call to justification, that we belong to God. And because we belong to God, justification, we are sanctified by God. Sanctification. Again, Jesus, notice in verse number 9, says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And because we belong to Christ, the Word of God reminds us that then we are sanctified by God alone. Now, there's a reason why this is so important. Because if your sanctification is based on your justification, you will not live in despair. I remember I worked in a coffee shop. Um, four years I've, I was a barista. I think I've told you all this before. And it was an amazing place to work because all sorts of things happened there. I, I had a young lady working with me. She only worked with me for about three months. And she came in, and every day she had an existential crisis. You know, something was, was up in the air in her life. And one day she knew I was studying for the ministry. She came to me and she said, aren't you afraid that you're gonna lose your salvation? I was taken aback. So I looked at her, I was like, how do you mean lose my salvation? I can't lose my salvation, I'm in Christ. And she said, no, no, my pastor tells me that I can lose my salvation. So I said, oh, that's interesting, tell me more. And so she starts talking about how her pastor told her that if they sinned, they had to ask forgiveness right away, otherwise they would go to hell if they died. And I say, how is that possible? I said, look, your pastor is basing your justification on your sanctification. In other words, your pastor is saying that unless you live this perfect life, you will die and go to hell. But I said, that's wrong. Our our justification isn't based on our sanctification. Our sanctification is based on our justification. Remember, justification is the process by which we are made in the image of Christ. You and I uh, never reach a place where we're sinless, so of course we're going to sin. We can't keep ourselves from sin. But our justification is totally different. Our justification is based on the free gift that Christ has given to us in the gospel. He is the one that has done the work. And I took her to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. This beautiful passage. I took her to a number of passages. But I took her to Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. I said, look, for by grace are you saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the results of work, so that no one may boast. I said, this is your justification. But I said, notice this. After justification comes sanctification, verse number 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And you can see the weight taken off of her shoulders because now this woman finally got it that she doesn't have to work to keep herself from sin. She just has to walk in the good works that Christ and God has prepared for her. Beloved, when when Jesus prays for us that we might be sanctified by the truth, he's praying that you and I might be uh, sanctified in terms of the work that Christ is doing in us or the work that God will do in us. So we don't base our justification on our sanctification. No, no. We base our sanctification in who we are in Christ. This is what we term positional sanctification. That because we are in Christ, we are assured that we will be sanctified. Now notice the second thing. There's an ethical dimension in here. Notice verse number 17. He said that we'll be sanctified by truth. That our sanctification comes as a result of what is true. There's one author uh, who made uh, an important uh, definition of sanctification. And I, I really appreciated it. He, this is what he says. He says, sanctification involves producing something that wasn't present before. Well, what is he talking about? Well, this author is talking about the fact that sanctification isn't simply God keeping us From the evil one. Or sanctification isn't simply God keeping us from worldly behavior, but sanctification comes as a result of our obedience to the truth that God is fashioning us and shaping us by His truth, or in other words, by means of His truth. And so when we read the word of God, as we hear the word of God preached, we are being fashioned and shaped by that. This is why sanctification is a messy process. I remember a young man um, who went to our church when I lived in the Bahamas for some time. And man, he just cursed all the time. And it didn't matter. You know, we'd pull him on the side and say, brother, look, like you need to stop cursing so much. You know, you're you're impacting the children. But eventually we noticed that the word of God began to take root in his heart. But it was a messy process because then he would curse and say, oh, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, ah, stop cursing. But yet God was doing a work in his heart where he's being convicted. Sanctification is a messy process and will never arrive. I love how C.S. Lewis illustrates this. In his book, *Mere Christianity, listen to how C.S. Lewis describes the process of sanctification. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes to rebuild that house. As first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace because he intends to come and live and dwell inside. So what is Lewis saying here? He's saying that the process of sanctification in your life is messy. And that God just isn't content with you being a good middle class Christian. What God is intent on is making you into the image of Christ. And that's going to require radical change. That's going to require you dealing with your grumpy attitude. That's going to require you dealing with your complaining and judgmental attitude. That's going to require you addressing the sanctimony in your heart and the self-righteousness in your heart. That's going to require you to rejoice in the Lord and in the power of the Lord. That's going to require a kind of change that most of us are unwilling to make. But that the Bible says we must make because God is doing something completely new. Christian, God is changing you. And you ought not to resist that change. In fact, you cannot resist that change because he will take a sledgehammer to your life. And he will completely wreck it. And you should be glad because the house that you are constructing is nothing but a shack. God isn't interested in building shacks. He's interested in building palaces so that he can come and reside in. But that's going to take work, much work. Notice not only are we called to be sanctified by the truth, But we also are called to be identified by our unity. Notice with me in verse number 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Notice in verse 20 through 23, he repeats the same language the language of unity. Now, why is unity important for the people of God? There's three reasons. I want to give you them real quick. First of all, it's this. The unity among believers reflects the unity in the Trinity. He says so right here in verse number 11. He says, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. That's That language of even as we are one points to the Trinity. That our unity in the church is reflective of the Trinity. Whenever I do premarital counseling, I always tell the couple that I'm counseling that your marriage is a picture of the gospel. And then I set out the list about 20 ways in which that happens. And by the time I reach number 15, you can see the look on their face. You know, their eyes start to bulge and they're like, oh my goodness, what am I getting myself into? Their, hard blood, their high blood pressure begins to raise. Why? It's not because they don't want to do it, but they begin to realize the high standard that their marriage requires. That it's supposed to be a picture and an image of God. Well, Jesus is saying the same thing here that the unity within the church is meant to reflect the unity that is the Trinity. That's a high standard, beloved. And you and I are called to keep it. You and I are called to be in union with one another. Now, what does this union in the Trinity look like? We get glimpses of it here in this passage. Look at verse number 23. Jesus says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them as you loved me. One core aspect of unity in the Trinity is that they love one another passionately, and they pursue one another. Notice quickly in verse 4 and 5 that a core aspect of Trinitarian existence is this serving one another. Jesus says this, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now... And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Well, what is he referring to here? He's referring to how he has served his Father. And now his Father is serving him. In verse number 10, we get a picture of the selflessness that exists in the Trinity. And then in verse number 11 and 13, we get a picture of the fellowship that exists in the Trinity. And that's what you and I as God's people should be exhibiting. That we have the same purpose, mutual love, longing to be together in the fellowship of our Lord. Notice with me also, not only does it evidence the Trinity, but notice in verse number 14 he says the reason why we should be unified is because we live in a world that hates us. Verse number 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Beloved, we live in a world that is against Christianity and against what we believe, a world that is hostile towards us. And as a matter of practicality, Jesus is saying if we're not unified, if we're hostile in the church, where do we ever go to receive and and have a picture of unity? Our world today is incredibly ununified. Hostility abounds between uh, people of different political beliefs, cultural beliefs, ethnicity. You could go down the line. And Jesus is saying that if unity does not exist in the church, where do we expect unity to exist? Well, it has to begin with us. Unity has to begin with us. Notice the last thing with me in verse number 23. The reason why we should be unified is because unity in the church authenticates the message of the gospel. He says in verse 23 I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them as you loved me. Jesus is saying here that when we are unified in the life of the church, that we evidence and authenticate the message of the gospel. Now, real quick, what are the things that unify us as God's people? How can this passage show us that we can be unified as God's people? Well, the first thing is seen in verse, uh, in verse number 11 when Jesus says, Keep them in your name. That idea of being kept in your name means that the power of the Holy Spirit keeps us unified. That we have a unifying mind and a unifying voice as a result of the power of the Holy Spirit. But notice also this passage indicates that prayer unifies us. Prayer unifies us as God's people praying for one another. In Acts 1.14 it says, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Christians pray for one another. Husbands, are you praying for your wives? Children, are you praying for your parents? You know, children, you often complain about your parents giving you all these rules, telling you what to do. Why don't you pray for them? You know, the job of a parent is difficult. I didn't understand that until I became a parent. One of the ways that you can minister to your parents' children is by praying for them and stop complaining about them. One day you'll be a parent You'll see how difficult it is. So begin the process now of praying for your parents. But not only that, we're called to pray for one another and lift up one another in prayer. And lastly, notice that communion unifies us. In the next few moments, all of us will come before the table as one. Now, it's not the way we like it. You know, we have individual cups. Would the God that we we probably didn't serve communion like this. But the point is that all of us now will share in the communion of the table. And we're going to say the same prayers together. And partake of the same bread and partake of the same juice. It's this communion that unifies us as a body before the Lord. And keeps us together. And with that now, let's go before our Lord in prayer. As we look to take communion together. I'll ask the elders to come as we give a prayer of intercession on behalf of you. And I'll open in prayer. And then I'll ask Brother David to come.